80 Proof Politics is brought to you by Evergreen Productions. You can find this and several other fascinating podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. There are, ma- there are many things that make the Sam Bankman Freed story fascinating and different than many we've seen before. And so I think there are a lot of people watching this play out to see whether all the interviews that Sam gave after the bankruptcy or, or what, when his company was in bankruptcy, um, whether those come back to haunt him or whether those somehow help him put a friendlier face on the plight that he's in. Welcome to 80 Approved Politics, Behind the Curtain, a special series looking at Sam Bankman-Fried, his company FTX, and their meteoric rise through the hallways of Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Bill Shute. When Coindesk published a report on November 2nd wondering about the financial health of both FTX and Alameda, this was the first time most people in the crypto world became aware of how closely intertwined the two entities were. Then, when crypto heavyweight and longtime FTX rival Binance announced it would sell all of its holdings of FTT, the FTX coin, things started to unravel faster than a cheap Christmas sweater. And FTX was about to become the poster child for more effective oversight of the crypto industry. Not exactly the policy objective FTX had in mind when it bought that Capitol Hill townhouse. So how did this sweater thread start to unwind? Turns out Alameda Research depended on FTX crypto customers for its funding, and SBF used Alameda's balance sheet as his personal ATM. Plus, after the Coindesk article, some traders on social media noticed that Alameda borrowed more than a million tether from a lending platform called Aave on November 10th. It appeared that Alameda was trying to swap tether they didn't own, and had borrowed funds to buy, then swap it out for a different stable coin, USDC. Moves that looked like Alameda was trying to tank Tether's value. Which is exactly what the head of Binance, Changpeng Zhao, commonly known as CZ, publicly accused SBF of trying to do. Uh, by the way, what is it with crypto bros and their initials? I don't know. One day later, FTX and 130 affiliated entities filed for bankruptcy, and SBF's fortune vanished. Why didn't anyone see this coming before November? Well, turns out some did. It's not uncommon for the crypto world to be incestuous. That's certainly the case in the venture capitalist world. But why wasn't there more due diligence? One friend in the industry thinks he knows why. Big investors follow each other's leads. Same with the venture capital world. For instance, Sequoia Capital is known for having the gold standard of due diligence. Once they got involved with SBF and invested in FTX, the rest of the lemmings jumped off the cliff. I I think what ended up happening with this is everybody sort of looked at others who had decided to work with SBF, Sequoia being one of them, but well-respected media publications and others, and said, well, if those folks are working with him, then we're going to take their word for it. We're going to assume they did the due diligence. 
and really assume that you know this some this is somebody who's legitimate and, and somebody that we should spend our time with. And I think what ended up happening is that really sort of spiraled so that everybody looked to the previous person or the previous investor to assume that the one before them did the due diligence. And it really looks like not many people did any due diligence at all, Sequoia included. It's obvious now that the firms throwing money at SBF should have done the humdrum work of due diligence and and demanded a hand in overseeing the company. But FTX raised most of its financing in 2021 when it seemed like crypto prices could only go up. Under such circumstances, it's all too easy for founders to get funded with few or no strings attached. However, more than a few organizations approached by SBF and FTX to join their cause turned them down. One is the nonprofit Our World in Data, which claims to focus solely on grand challenges. Things like poverty, pandemics, equality, and existential threats. SBF must have thought that this group was a perfect fit for his version of effective altruism because the FTX Future Fund offered the group $7.5 million in a grant to track trends that are relevant to humanity's long-term prospects. Our world in data turned the money down after doing something very simple, conducting due diligence. MITRE, the nonprofit company that manages federally funded research and development centers and serves as systems engineering advisors under contract to many government agencies, was offered $485,000 last May to research bioweapon security, but turned FTX down. By the way, the FTX Future Fund was created as part of the SBF nonprofit FTX Foundation. Get confusing, I know. This was supposed to be his biggest philanthropic arm, with plans to distribute as much as $1 billion to charity in 2022. But while the Future Fund made gifts mostly from the FTX Foundation, it also paid out some grants from something called North Dimension, Inc., once it was determined that the foundation couldn't be defined as charitable anymore by U.S. tax code. Is all this too good to be true? I mean, just in case you had been offered money by FTX and the funds came from something called North Dimension, Inc., don't you think you would have at least been curious enough to do an online search for that name? Thankfully, even though North Dimension was also included in the bankruptcy proceedings and their website has shut down, the web archive.org has kept versions. Turns out that this FTX unit was a shell disguising itself as an electronics wholesale site. The page even describes it as the world's top e-commerce site for consumer electronics in order to provide the lowest costs for authentic items from the world's most reputable brands. I, I don't even know where to begin. What's the connection to crypto here? Well, after the bankruptcy filings, SBF continued to defend the future fund's grants and big thinking. But he also acknowledged that not everything he did was genuine. In an interview with Vox after the bankruptcy filing, SBF was asked, the ethics stuff, uh, mostly a front? His reply, yeah. He added that he had to be good at talking about ethics because it's what reputations are made of. He went on to say that regulated companies, quote, are not looking 
at saving thousands of lives. They run promotions and marketing campaigns that are unimpactful, he said. And FTX did as well. And then, the final straw. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American-built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnerships YouTube channel. In December, federal prosecutors charged SBF with several counts of criminal fraud and conspiracy. Basically, Prosecutors say he defrauded his crypto exchange's customers and his hedge fund's lenders by using FTX deposits to pay Alameda Research's expenses and debts. He also was charged with defrauding the federal government and conspiring to make illegal political contributions. It's this last point that has raised the profile of this story inside the Beltway. Prosecutors claim that these contributions were disguised to look like they were coming from SBF, Ryan Salami, and others when in fact they were funded by Alameda Research with misappropriated customer money. As the lead prosecutor Damien Williams said, all of this dirty money was used in service of Bankman-Fried's desire to buy bipartisan influence and impact the direction of public policy in Washington. So what has been Washington's response to all of this? On December 19th, FTX debtors, the legal entity created by the bankruptcy proceedings to try to reclaim FTX customer funds, released a statement calling on all recipients of FTX and SBF largesse to return the funds they received. This would presumably include political campaigns and groups. Now, to their credit, many members and political groups were quick to say they'll give the money back as soon as the bankruptcy court tells them how. For instance, House Majority PAC and Senate Majority PAC said they've set aside the contributions from FTX officials with the intention of returning them once they're instructed to do so by authorities. But good luck seeing any of the dark money spent on independent expenditures. And on the regulatory front, FTX's biggest official skeptic, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler, is definitely feeling his oats. He announced that he wants to give small investors a better deal on stock trades, by forcing greater competition for their orders. Repeat after me. Reddit? Even SBF's BFF, the CFTC, has filed a separate lawsuit accusing him and his companies of fraud that affected the markets it regulates. And no surprise here, with the loss and prosecution of a very active and high-profile influencer, passage of the DCCPA has been derailed for the moment. Now, before we wrap up this mini-series, I have a question for you. 
Why are SBF's law school professor parents allowing him to ignore the time-tested playbook of crisis communications? You know it well. Hunker down. Stay quiet. Perhaps put out a press release full of contrition, and I promise to do better. But since the bankruptcy filing on November 11th, SBF has given more interviews than Ryan Reynolds promoting Deadpool. There are many, there are many things that make the Sam Bankman-Fried story fascinating and different than many we've seen before. But one of them is uh, is sort of how available he has made himself to the media. Before the FTX bankruptcy, he was on many magazine covers. He would give interviews seemingly to any reporter that would ask. Uh, and so that, I guess, on the on the rise up is is interesting. And every reporter loves to get access to somebody who seems uh, hugely successful. But what's been particularly interesting is that even in the midst of his downfall, Sam Bankman-Fried has continued talking to the press almost at an equivalent clip as, as he had been before. And during each step along this way, SBF has said that while denying any knowledge that customer money was wrongly used, he continues to expose himself to admissible evidence. He has repeatedly discussed FTX's lack of internal firewalls, lack of corporate governance, being too distracted, caught up in celebrity. He can't even say how much customer money was involved or lost. You know, that is not the crisis communications playbook. That's the exact opposite of it. And and so I think there are a lot of people watching uh, this play out to see whether uh, all the interviews that Sam gave after the bankruptcy or, or what, when his company was in bankruptcy, um, whether those come back to haunt him or whether those, um, you know, somehow help him put a friendlier face on the, the, uh, the plight that he's in. And in a December 2nd interview with the Wall Street Journal, while trying to explain his version of how things went down, SBF started throwing Alameda Research under the bus. Come with me down this rabbit hole for just a minute. As SBF explained it, customers would wire money to Alameda, get credited with a balance of coin on FTX, but not quite sure if the money was ever transferred from Alameda or if their books even showed such a transaction. Then when Alameda would be short on cash, FTX would transfer an amount of funds to them. Are we talking about the same customer dollars here? Just think for a minute how this starts to snowball when FTX starts allowing customers to margin trade, borrowing money against their account balance to buy more coin. It gets murkier when you think of Alameda as one of those customers. And aside from the confusing, perhaps shady transactional malfeasance, doesn't it sound like SBF is trying to pull an Elizabeth Holmes here and pass the missing buck onto his 28-year-old friend, partner, ex Caroline Ellison? No one was even sure where she was in the days between the bankruptcy filing and her recent prosecution, although a photo of her at a Soho cafe was posted to Twitter on December 4th. Someone clearly gave her the crisis communications handbook, but not SBF. Time and again, he's brought up the topic of being too distracted by other activities, read Washington, among other things, he even went so far in the Wall Street Journal interview to state that he didn't have enough brain cycles left to understand everything going on at Alameda if I wanted to. 
he even went so far as to say he didn't really enjoy all that hobnobbing with celebrities and federal officials. Really? Give me a break. So in the end, what should you and I take away from all this? Well, look, it's hard for me to say that SBF spent too much time wooing Washington and not enough time minding the store. I really don't have any issues with the tactics they employed. It's hard to get noticed in Washington amid the crowded theater of 10 to 12,000 registered lobbyists clamoring to get the attention of decision makers. And admittedly, it's pretty impressive how FTX and SBF went from total obscurity to preparing the hottest holiday party invites since the pandemic. And what exactly did SBF get with all those campaign contributions? Set aside for a moment the potential illegality of sourcing those contributions from his personal piggy bank at Alameda, and that the slop that fattened that piggy was double-entry accounting based on unsuspecting customers of FTX. Uh, How have I not mentioned Bernie Madoff yet? Well, there's nothing, though, to suggest that the money added up to anything more than exposure. This is why we have campaign contribution reports. The truth will out. But people of all walks, members, media, even regulators were entranced by his uniqueness. And more will unfold as the bankruptcy proceedings and federal prosecutions mature. All of this could amount to nothing more than one more reminder to snake oil salesmen that what you do and say has consequences. Oh, and if you're an investor... Don't do business with a jurisdiction that doesn't have regulatory protections like the U.S. So, is the Wild West of crypto fading into the annals of history? Can crypto bros ever find a friend in D.C. again? Even with this massive black eye, cryptocurrency and blockchain technology are not going away. Over time, decentralized financing could probably become the norm, just like high-frequency trading at first disrupted the market, but it's now widely accepted and used. But the train tracks coming from the east have been laid, and there's been a sighting of the U.S. cavalry on the horizon. So, unlike your account at FTX, don't write crypto off just yet. Regulators have seen the potential, Congress has whetted its appetite, And the craziness of the stock market this past year still has people looking for a place to grow their personal fortunes. And if they build it, people will come to Washington as well as Wall Street. And one last time, a huge thanks to Dakin Campbell from The Insider. He and his colleagues Rob Price, Jack Newsom, and Darius Ruffian wrote that fantastic article that inspired this, Mr. Crypto Goes to Washington. And join me next week when 80 Proof Politics returns to its regular format with a conversation with the woman who was in charge of the House Administration Committee during the 2020 election and the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Proof Politics is brought to you by Evergreen Productions. You can find this and several other fascinating podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com.
This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.